Welcome to the Faith Broadcast. I'm so glad that you're watching today's message. I believe it'll be a blessing to you. I believe it'll encourage you, it'll strengthen you, and empower you to make Jesus famous in your everyday life. Enjoy today's message, and I'll see you at the end of the broadcast. So we're doing a series right now called Passing the Test of Life. Passing the Test of Life. And one of our key scriptures has been John 16, verse 33. It says, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That word tribulation means a pressing together. It means affliction, distress, and different degrees of trouble or difficulty. So Jesus said, in this world, on this planet, you will have pressure and different degrees of trouble or difficulty. But be of good cheer, which means be bold, be courageous be joyful cheer up why i have overcome or i have conquered the world jesus said i've received the victory and now i've given you the victory and so when we look at the test of life and the pressures in this life we have to remember we are on the winning side so i am on the winning side now let's say it again with some faith and put it online in the chat too say i am on the winning side We talked about over the last couple weeks how Satan desires to put pressure on our lives to break us and make us back away from what God called us to do. We looked at Mark chapter 4, that word affliction is the same word for tribulation here in John 16, 33, which means pressure. And then there's another word called persecution, which means pressure brought by people. And in the parable Jesus told, that pressure was applied to make that word that received, that seed of the word of God that grew up, to make it disappear and look like they had no evidence of the word in the first place. That is Satan's goal. That word in Mark chapter 4 in the King James, the New King James, it'll say offended or stumbled. And that definition to be offended or to stumble in Mark chapter 4 means to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. To stumble or to be offended in Mark chapter 4 means to cause someone to begin to distrust. Notice it's begin to begin to distrust and desert one whom we ought to trust and obey. It's also translated to mean to fall away. So Satan, through affliction and persecution, so through pressure, wants to make people distrust the one the way they ought to trust. Make them disobey the one they ought to obey. To make them fall away. That's his end game. To apply pressure to make you turn on God. And notice the difference is to begin. So it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process to make you turn. So he'll apply pressure. And remember, it says he came back to Jesus at opportune time. So he's looking at a time where he can apply pressure at the right spot to make you turn on God. That's his goal. Now, we've all known people who've gotten saved. When they got saved. They were saved, you know, talking about mighty burning fire. You couldn't tell them nothing. They witnessed to everything that moved. The birds, the trees, the bees, everything heard about what Jesus did for them. They had a new tongue every single Sunday. And they were on fire for God. But then something happened. Pressure was applied. And they look back and like, wait a minute, they don't even go to church no more. You look at their life, it looks like they never received the word in the first place. Much worse, sometimes you look at their life, it looks like they never got saved in the first place. 
What was that? Satan's pressure attack was successful. Go with me to James chapter 1, doing a bit of review so I can get us some new territory today. If you missed any of our previous messages, the messages are on our Faith Plus app, our YouTube channel, and our podcast. Pressure. And so we looked at James chapter 1, the first few verses last week, and we talked about James is writing to these believers who were scattered. Now, when we read the book of Acts, we know why they were scattered. Jesus told the people after he was raised from the dead, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem until you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And guess what? That happened 10 days later. They told him, these 500 people who saw him after he was raised from the dead, stay in Jerusalem until you receive this baptism, and then you are going to be witnesses for me in Judea, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So don't stay in Jerusalem the whole time, but stay till you get the power, then get to moving. But what happened? They stayed in Jerusalem. Now, what was interesting to me is a lot of these people who were part of the 500, most of them, a lot of them were from Jerusalem, Capernaum, other places in Judea. They weren't from Jerusalem, but remember to a Jew, Jerusalem is that spot. It's where they want to be. The temples is the center of their culture. That's where they want to be. But Jesus said, I need you to keep going. And now we look at the first eight chapters, nine chapters of the book of Acts. At minimum, that covers a period of several months, and at max, three to five years. And one of the things we see is, guess what? They never left Jerusalem, either for several months or a few years. Even though Jesus said, once you receive the Holy Ghost, get to move it. But they didn't. And what happened? This pressure tactic of Satan rose up, and they were scattered. Now, we talked about Satan always brings pressure. He wants to attack. That's what he does. But his attacks were more impactful against the church because they weren't doing what they're supposed to do. Satan always looks for inroads in areas where there's partial obedience or disobedience. So remember, this attack he brought wasn't to get them to scatter. Satan attacked the church to destroy them, to eradicate them, to kill them all, to remove them, right? He was not trying to scatter them. But he attacked, and then it says they were scattered, and they went everywhere preaching the gospel like they were supposed to in the first place. Satan didn't want them scattered. He wanted them done for. Yet he failed because Jesus is still faithful even when we're stupid. Has anybody had the testimony that Jesus is faithful even when you're stupid? Anybody ever done something stupid and Jesus still came through for you? And so the book of James is one of the earliest epistles written. The only one close to it is 1 Thessalonians. And James is writing to these believers who were scattered. So by context, they've been scattered because of the attack of Satan, and they've been scattered because of partial obedience. So he's writing to them and says, in the midst of this pressure, well, what pressure are they in? Think about it. If you were scattered, if you had to run for your life, and you can only take what you could carry. Running into your house, you can grab something and run out to a place you never lived before. You don't have much with you. Imagine you have to resettle in a place that you're not used to. You have to find a new job, new livelihood, new place to live. Imagine the pressures and the circumstances that are facing you, and you know you're looking over your shoulder because there's this crazy dude named Saul who's trying to hunt people. So imagine the pressure you're facing, and James writes, count it all joy. Come on, you know you want to say, I know you look like Jesus because you're Jesus' little brother, but bruh, get, get, count it, joy. It wasn't like he waited because, you know, Paul sometimes has these lengthy greetings, and by verse 10 or chapter 2, he gets to what he wants to talk about. No, verse 2, count it joy, which means consider it joy. 
when you fall into diverse tests and temptations. You're in this pressure, I want you to consider it joy. He says, why? Knowing that the trying of your faith, now by context, who is trying their faith? Satan, it's not God. Satan is doing it. He says, know that the trying of your faith produces the Christian cuss word. Patience. That word patience means cheerful endurance, not just endurance, cheerful endurance. You know, I wonder if we have cheerful endurance or patience like children. Think about it, think about it. You can tell a kid to be patient. They may for five seconds, 30 seconds, before they ask again, right? Or they say, I'm bored, or are we there yet? I wonder if that's what our patience looks like to God sometimes. Not cheerful endurance, like, okay, I waited 30 seconds. He says, it'll produce patience, and when patience has its perfect or complete work, or when patience is done, you end up in a place where you are spiritually mature. Because pressure, if you have the wrong response to pressure, you'll end up immature. Spiritually immature. Just because you get older doesn't mean you get mature in the things of God. Spiritual growth is not linear. You can have a mature Christian today in a couple years, they can be a baby all over again. Spiritual growth is not linear. And so it depends on how you respond to pressure. It depends if you get mature or immature. But also, sometimes people respond the right way. They do what's right because they've been taught the word. But they don't respond from a place of faith or hope or love. So they're doing the right things, but instead of becoming mature, they become aged. There's a difference of being aged and being mature. So now, instead of being mature and full of faith and hope and know that God can work things out, you speak wisdom from a place of bitterness. And so although you may say the right thing, but it's tainted with bitterness. It's hope-killing wisdom, dream-killing wisdom. It may be right, but it's tainted. I remember this old Pentecostal saying, I remember someone told me about 15 years ago, they said, keep your rivers pure. Keep your rivers pure. Because remember it says, from your belly will flow rivers of living water. But if you keep bitterness in here, guess what? Gonna flow on those rivers, bitterness. That you're doing what is right, but there's a, there's a little taste in that water that flows from you. How many of you know that when the water's off, you can taste it? When anybody have that boil water advisory, says, hey, don't drink that water until you boil it. Because if you drink it without boiling it, you may be consuming some stuff that's not good for you. What are you putting out in the world? Is it tainted with bitterness? And so he says, you'll be mature and you end up in a place where you lack nothing. When endurance, cheerful endurance has its perfect worth, you'll be mature and end up in a place where you lack nothing. Think about what these believers lacked. They're not in Jerusalem. They're not at home. They had to find new homes, new jobs, new livelihoods, new things for their family, new things for their kids, new ways of living. They're lacking a lot. A lot of specifically material things, right? But James says, if you let patience have its perfect work, you'll be at a place where you won't like anything. That's a promise. And then he says, if any of you lack wisdom, well, what do they need wisdom for? To deal with the crazy situation they're in. If you lack wisdom, ask of God, 
who gives to all men liberally and upbraid of not, but ask in faith, nothing doubting. Now, what are they asking for in faith specifically? Wisdom. Ask God for wisdom in faith. Don't doubt. For the person who doubts and goes back and forth on this matter is like a, a wave of the sea tossed by the wind. So what is the example of this? Well, God, I'm facing this situation. I ask that you give me wisdom. I receive that wisdom, and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. That's how you pray. Five seconds later, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if God heard me pray. Oh, I don't know if God's going to show me what to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't. That's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And James said, if that is how you live, don't think you'll receive anything from God. For a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What is being double-minded? Asking God or believing him one moment and doubting him the next. If you go back and forth, back and forth, he says you won't receive anything, and then you will be unstable in every way. Which lets me know a single-minded man can be stable in all his ways. So if I focus by context on the promises of God, believing that God's going to do exactly what he said, and I keep that my focus no matter my circumstance or my situation, no matter my pressure, if I stay in faith believing that God's going to see me through, that God's got me, I can be stable. And we need to be stable people during unstable times. Do you know that's a witness that you're still stable when the world goes crazy? Not only will you be stable, you'll receive everything from God that you've asked for. So let's get into a little bit of new territory. Let's jump to verse 12. Remember, he's still talking to the same people. He says, blessed is the man that endures temptation, this pressure, this trial. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Man, how many people say that? And they put on a Christian songs and they put on a repeat on the radio. It's God's fault I'm in this situation. God gave me the sickness to teach me something. God caused me to lose my job to teach me something. You know, God sent us COVID so we get better, along better as a nation. A whole bunch of crazy stuff. And we blame it on God. And James says, when you're tempted, when you're tried, do not blame God. Because he said, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man, when he is tempted, he's drawn away of his own lust, which means his own desire by what he wants, and is enticed. And then when that lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. So what happens when this pressure is applied, and you're being tempted now in the midst of the pressure to turn on God, leave God, and do something else? The temptation Satan will bring will be something that you want. Well, remember, before you got saved, you could do this. Life wasn't that bad before you got saved because you could do this. It's that temptation. He's not going to tempt you with something that you don't want because if he does, it's not a temptation. So he'll tempt you with something that gets your eyes on it, and then when you—it's not immediate. But you begin to act on that temptation, and you get into sin. And now that you're in sin, after a little while, that sin produces some form of death in your life. And before you know it, you're not even walking with Jesus anymore. And you have no evidence for the word that you receive. And James says, don't blame God. Then he goes on in the same thought process, verse 16. 
do not err, my beloved brother. Don't get it twisted. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He says, God did not put that on you to teach something. Remember, he's talking to people who were scattered because of the attack of the devil. He says, God did not do this to you. Yeah, you missed it, but this is not what God did to you. Because what comes from God is good. It's perfect. Another phrase that says it's upgrading. These gifts come from God. This is what he's sending. So if it comes from God, it's good, it's upgrading, it's perfecting, it's completing. And it says it comes from God with no variable, it's neither shadow of turning. One of the Greek phrases, it comes down like a thunder shower. And in Georgia, we're familiar with that. Because it can be all clear like it is right now. But all of a sudden, whoosh. And if you're outside, you are drenched. Doesn't take 10 minutes, doesn't take five minutes. And it's saying God sends good gifts like thunder showers. That's what he sends. That's what he gives, not the tests and trials and pressures that make you want to turn on him. And so today's message is simply called, What to Do When All Hell Breaks Loose. What to do when all hell breaks loose. Number one, don't blame God. Number one, don't blame God. Let's say it out loud. Let's put it in the chat. Say, number one, don't blame God. You see, God is never your problem. He's always your answer. He's never your problem. He's always your answer. Here's why it's so dangerous to blame God. Because if you think God did this to you, why on earth would you pray to him? How could you come to him with any faith or any love? Because faith works by love. How could you stand on a promise in the scripture and ask God to deliver you when you think he's the one who put it on you? And see, the thing is, we buy into this religious mess that's not even founded in the Bible, but founded on unscriptural teachings from the Bible. And we believe that, but we really don't believe that, because if you get sick and you think God put it on you to teach you something, then why do you go to the doctor? Why do you take medicine? Why do you take vitamins? Why do you go to the hospital if you really believe that? But you don't believe that. God did not give you that to teach you something. Because we've said some horrible things and put it on God. Horrible things. One of the worst things, and I talked about it this week in some of the training I was in, people saying, well, you know, God took them because he needed another flower in heaven. Bull. God did not take them so that he can have a flower. Do you know how horrible that is to say to a family member? much less to say it about a child, that is not the God we serve. And one of the trainings I was in this week, I told him, because we're talking about dealing with this matter and making sure you don't say crazy stuff like that. I said, there could be a situation, I don't know what happened, but if I have to say something, because sometimes I'll go do home goings and, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I put myself in a certain position where I call it a bat cleanup. So why? Because somebody crazy can say something before then. Well, you know, God took them. Not, not. And so I just wait and I smile. Like I have a good smiling face. I'm pretty good. You won't know that I'm thinking, now that's a mess. I have a good, it's good. And because I'm a familiar with different denominations, I know how to phrase it depending on what house I may be in. And so here's how I phrase it. Well, God didn't take them, but he sure did receive them. 
God wasn't behind that car accident. God wasn't behind that sickness. God wasn't behind this. He didn't take them, but he received them. Go to James chapter 5. So when all hell breaks loose, number one, don't blame God. James chapter 5. Remember, he's still writing to them, and you know why he's writing to them. James chapter 5, verse 10. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Say endure. Come on, put in the chat and say it out loud again. Say endure. You have heard of the perseverance or the patience or the endurance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So he said he saw the end intended by the Lord, what he wanted, and he saw how he is very compassionate and merciful. So he is merciful. The message version says it this way. Take the old prophets as your mentors. They put up with anything and went through everything and never once quit, all the time honoring God. What a gift life is to those who stay the course. You've heard, of course, of Job's staying power. I love how they put it, Job's staying power. And you know how God brought it all together for him at the end. That's because God cares, cares right down to the last detail. So one of the things we covered a couple weeks ago when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where we talk about no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But when you are tempted, God always provides a way out. And God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. We looked at that 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. And so you know if it shows up in your life, there's a way out. Say there's a way out. Come on, we sang it earlier that he's a way maker. He always makes a way out for you. But also he is limited it with a spiritual law. That means nothing can show up in your life that you can't beat. Because it says if you can't handle it, it can't show up. So if it shows up, you can beat it. If it shows up, you can defeat it. Say, nothing is allowed in my life that I can't beat. Now, a couple of verses before that, it says, talking about those who lived in the Old Testament on the Old Covenant, it says, look at them, and from them, let them be our examples. Now, when you have an example, you can learn what to do and what not to do. Come on, a wise person can get a PhD from a fool. Even if all it is, just don't do that. And one of the things it tells in 1 Corinthians 10 that these people who lived under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, are our examples, and we can learn from them patience, hope, we can learn how God is faithful. And so Job is one of these people in the Old Testament. And James says we are to learn from him his staying power. Now what happens when you talk about the promises of God or victory or God, you know, causing you to pass the test of life, people always say, well, what about Job? We always do. You know, after church last week, I had a young man ask me a question along these lines, and I did my best to give him a six-week answer in 45 seconds. Man, I was spitting it. I was trying. And I said, but I think I'll pick up with Job next week. So let's go to Job chapter 1. What about Job? Let's see Job, because everybody loves to talk about Job. So Job chapter 1, verse 1. First question. It's not a trick question. Where is the book of Job? 
Is it the Old Testament or the New Testament? So this means you have a different covenant. So although we can talk about Job all day long, you are not under the same circumstance that this brother's under. You have a new covenant. You're under a new testament, right? So let's get that straight. But when you go to Job chapter 1, when he studied out, Job lived before the law. Not under the law. He's not even an Israelite. He's not a descendant from Abraham. So he's, remember, at this point, there is no written word. This brother's doing the best he can to serve God, and God says he's done a great job. But he's not under an old covenant, much less under our new covenant. He's in what at times called the times of promise and chaos under a dispensation. This is what he's living under. And it's said about him that he's mature, that he's upright, he's righteous. And guess what? He is blessed. It says he's the richest man in the East. He's got money. He is loaded. And so it says he's so rich that his kids, you know, they all have their own houses. And because they all had so much money, they would have a different feast every night of the week, not on special holidays, every night. And they would pick a different house, depending on whose night it was. Every night. Every night. No breaks in between. Let's have a salad. We ate too much last night. No, every night. But it says every morning, Job would wake up and say, well, maybe, just maybe, my sons may have cursed God in the heart while they are partying last night, so let me offer the sacrifices. He's doing the best he can under the circumstances under with limited revelation. And so you see that in the first few verses of Job, and then all of a sudden you're in the heavenlies, right? And this is where all the big philosophical debate comes in. Satan shows up before the throne of God. Now, notice two things. Why did he show up? Well, remember, who's in charge of the planet? Who's in charge of the planet? Why? Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, he gave his authority over to the devil. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the god of this world. And so he shows up and God says, where are you coming from? He says, you know, walking back and forth across the air, going to and fro here and there, you know, a little bit ev everywhere. Imagine, remember Satan's pride personified, so you know how he's talking. He's not reverent. You know he's got some stuff with it. And, but notice, the Bible doesn't here call him the dragon or the devil or Beelzebub or one of his other titles. It calls him Satan. That word Satan means adversary or accuser. The word Satan means adversary or accuser. You see it again in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 in a similar situation. The word Satan means adversary or accuser. In modern day context, he's the prosecuting attorney. The prosecutor doesn't show up in the courtroom just for nothing. What up, judge? How you doing? No, they're coming with a charge. They're coming to take somebody down, right? They're not just showing up because they like the courtroom. They're showing up because they have something they plan to do. And so it's not God's idea because, you know, the prosecuting attorney shows up. He's, the judge is not giving him ideas saying, well, have you thought about this person? 
But when you have the religious understanding that you think God is behind all the evil on the earth, you think, well, God suggested it to Job. God suggested Job to Satan. No, he didn't. Remember, God knows everything. It says here, have you considered my servant Job? So depending on how you view God, you can say, well, God brought it up. Or you can say that God is upset that Satan has Job on his mind. Because God goes defending them. There's no one like him on this planet. He does this, he does this, he does this, he does this. And Satan jumps in, well, how, does he serve God for nothing? You've blessed him with everything. Satan is mad that Job is blessed. Satan is mad that Job is rich. And he says, you've put a hedge of protection. That's where that phrase comes, about him. Now, why would Satan know that? He tried to get Job but couldn't get through. He said, I tried, I just can't get through. Come on, we saw that in the life of Jesus. Satan was always trying to get Jesus, but he couldn't. He was always looking for an opening. That's why he finally found Judas. He could get through Judas. He had been looking for years to get Jesus. He couldn't. And now he's been trying to get Job but hasn't been able to. And then he makes his accusations. If you strike Job, take everything he has, he will curse you. That doesn't mean say something bad about you. That means renounce you. He will turn on you. This is what Satan's desire is. Isn't it the same thing we see in Mark chapter 4? To apply pressure to make you distrust the one you ought to trust and fall away from the one you ought to obey. This is what Satan's doing here. And then you keep reading. God says, behold. Now, the word behold doesn't mean here's a gift. The word behold means look, see. That's what it means. And God says, behold, everything he has is in your hands. Did God give it to him? No. He just said, I'm giving you everything Job has. He says, look, it's already in your hands. Now, how did that happen? Because you see it here in the next chapter. Now, we know that Job did have some fear in his life. You see that in Job chapter 3. He said, I feared a fear, and the fear came upon me. So we know fear opens doors. But one of the things you'll see as you read the book of Job, because it's not a small book, it's 42 chapters. The book of Job asks a lot of questions, but doesn't provide that many answers. And so we don't know all the reasons how what Job had ended up in Satan's hands. But it did. But while Satan is about to do what he wants to do, God says, you can't touch him. You can't kill him. What is that? A limitation from the mercy of God. Everything he has is in your hands, but you are not allowed to take him out. It's an intervention of what Satan was already trying to do. Because Satan wasn't just, Satan wanted Job gone. He didn't want him to be an example on the earth of this is what happens if you serve God. Satan wanted Job gone. And we see what happens. You read chapter 1, chapter 2, everything that Job has, gone. Family. Everything, everything he possessed, his fields, his animals, everything, gone. And you read chapter 1, chapter 2, you see clearly God didn't do it. It says Satan did it. Even when his health was affected in chapter 2, it says Satan did it. It was not God. That's why number one, when all hell breaks loose, don't blame God because it's not him. But also, you know, all of our philosophical debates come from, you know, verse 7 onward because we saw into the heavenlies. Now remember, we have these debates because we have the book of Job, right? Guess who didn't have the book of Job? Job. 
He didn't see into the heavenlies. All he knew was all hell broke loose. And he did not know why. And we, over 4,000 years later, are still debating the whys. We still don't know all the whys yet. So there are times in lives where there's a whole bunch of I don't knows. I don't know why this happened. I don't know how this happened. I was praying to do the best I knew I'd do, but this happened. I don't know. Some of you analytical people say, I just can't function under the I don't knows. There's a, there's a lot of I don't knows in life. My brother and sister, you're going to have to learn how to function in the midst of an I don't know. Job is in the I don't know. He doesn't know what happened, but he knows all hell broke loose. And his three friends show up. There's actually four, but three of them show up to comfort him. And for about 30 plus chapters, what they're saying between them and Job represents the wisdom of the ancients. All the wisdom of this Middle East, of this ancient culture is being provided here. And the three friends, well, Job, this happened because you sinned. That's why it happened. You sinned. And Job's, I didn't sin. Well, what did I do? Tell me what I did. They're going back and forth for 30 chapters. It's very poetic, full of wisdom, but that's a lot of talking. Going back and forth. And the wisdom of the ancients can't even answer the question of why all this happened to Job. They can't answer the I don't know. Job maintains his integrity. He says, I'm righteous. I did this. I did that. But Job makes some statements that aren't true, even though some people love to sing them and stand on them. Because remember, he doesn't know what's going on in the heavenlies. He's at a loss for words for a lot of these things, but he says he makes the decision, I'm not going to curse God, meaning I'm not going to renounce God. But he says, well, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yes, praise God, no matter the circumstances, but did God take anything away from Job here? No. He gave him every good thing. He didn't take anything away from him. He didn't. And so you see throughout this book, Job is saying, well, you know, God did it, God did it, God did it. He's not saying I'm not going to turn for him because he makes another phrase that people love to preach and sing about. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Well, praise God for trusting him, but he ain't the one trying to kill you. But I'm not too hard on Job because, look, we have 4,000 years plus and a full Bible to look at. He didn't have that. He doesn't know what's going on. He's in a whole bunch of I don't knows. And you know, you know he didn't, it says he didn't sin, he didn't renounce God, he didn't turn on him. So one of the things he did, he kept serving God in the midst of craziness, which is a positive. His staying power was that he stayed with God and did not renounce him and turn on him. So we learn that when all hell breaks loose, we stay with God no matter if we understand or not. We stick with them. That's what we learn from Job. But then when, you know, Job ends, you know, his discussion, and you get in the chapter 30s, it's even poetic how he ends it. The words of Job are ended. Like, bruh, okay, now you're in the third person. He's gone through a lot. But he ends with saying, I want the Almighty to show up and talk to me face to face. Then the fourth friend starts talking. He's been quiet this whole time. And he says, I didn't say anything because I'm young and y'all are very old. That's how he begins his conversation. And he says, I thought that with years comes wisdom, but I see that's not always the case. This is how he starts. And he goes on for several chapters. And he says, but there's an answer that comes from the Spirit of the Almighty. And he goes on for a number of chapters. And as soon as Elihu is finished, God shows up in a whirlwind and says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? 
or who is talking about what they don't understand. He says, stand up, man up, talk to me. I got some questions for you. Look, I love encounters with God. I don't want that one. I do not want God showing up in my room saying, stand up, man up, answer me. <laughs> Next house. <laughs> That's not the visitation I want. Well, this is the visitation that Job got. Who's talking about what they don't understand is what God is asking. Any of us talk about stuff that we really don't understand? Because Job at the end says, I, he said, I, I talk stupidly. I talk foolishly. Because he couldn't answer God's question. God gives him a list of questions. Job had no answer for it. And so in the midst of the I don't know, what do you learn? Number two, watch your mouth. Keep your mouth right. Loose lips sink ships. Watch your mouth. Keep your mouth right. Loose lips sink ships. I heard a man of God say this way, first words matter. So I can't talk faith right now, then don't talk. Or post, or tweet, or Snapchat, or create a reel. Just be quiet if you don't know what to do. Number two, keep your words right. Keep your mouth right. Number three, we saw something that in the midst of the wisdom of the ancients, there are some positive things said. And one of the things that Job says that shows something very powerfully, Job chapter 9, verse 33. Job chapter 9, verse 33, I'm going to read this time from the New Living Translation. The King James says a daysman, but in the New Living Translation, Job says, if only there was a mediator between us, between me and God, Someone who could bring us together. While Job was making all his charges, saying, I don't know why this is happening to me. Oh, there was a mediator who could talk to God on my behalf. And they could talk to me on his behalf. If there was somebody, some mediator that could bring us together. He says it again in Job 16, 21. I need someone to mediate between God and me. As a person mediates between friends, I need a mediator. I need somebody to show up and bring us together. Somebody to talk on my behalf and someone to talk on his behalf. Remember, this is the Old Testament. This is not on the New Covenant. Because 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. See, the thing is, the prosecuting attorney showed up with his charges, with his attacks. But now, even if he made these accusations and these attacks, there is a mediator. There is a defense attorney who stands before God. He is your high priest. He is Jesus the Christ, the resurrected Son of God, standing before the throne on your behalf. It says he's the high priest of your confession, so you also need to, again, once again, watch what you say. But also we learn from Hebrews that he went through everything that you could go through, passed the test, and he did not sin. So as I said before, you need to talk to Jesus about what you're going through and how you're feeling. Faith is not ignoring your emotions and ignoring your circumstances. Faith has clear view of what's going on. One of the examples is the book of Psalms. When you look at David, some of these psalms start up, David is, whew, depressed is an understatement. He is going through. He's talking about all his situations, what's happening to him. But when you get to the end of the psalms, there's victory, there's praise, 
there's rejoicing. There's knowing God's going to see me through. God's going to turn it around for me. See, when you're going through, when all hell breaks loose, yes, you need to talk to God, this is how I feel, this is what's going on, this is my situation, but I know I'm not staying here because you said this in your word. This is your promise. This is what you said. I know your word, I know your character, and I know you're faithful. So I'm not going to stay in my depression. I'm not going to stay in my mess. I know this situation is not permanent because if I can see it, it is subject to change. I know it will turn for my good because the scripture says he can take all things and work it together for your good that's what faith does so when all hell breaks loose once again know that it's not permanent Paul called it our light affliction our light pressure now when you look at what he went through we would think oh that's not light but Paul called it light we need to have the view that whatever we're facing is light well, light in compared to what? The glory of God that's within us. The glory is weighty. The glory is heavy. It's full of everything good. It's full of the power of God. And the glory that God has given you and put on the inside of you is heavier and greater than whatever you're facing. So that means you have to keep the right perspective when all hell breaks loose. You remember that you have a mediator that you can go to at any time. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a lie and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a mediator. We have an advocate. But he doesn't stop there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Talking about what we're drawing new to, what we're approaching. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Say, that's my covenant. Come on, say it online. Put it in the chat. Say it out loud again. Say, that's my covenant. But if that wasn't enough, notice this next phrase. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Remember in Genesis, God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. See, Jesus shed his blood. And then remember when he was raised from the dead, Mary Magdalene ran and grabbed him and hugged him just like you would. And she said, don't cling to me because I have to go and ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. Why was he ascending? Remember, he's our high priest. He is presenting his blood on the mercy seat before the throne of God on our behalf. And so when you look at Jesus raised from the dead, it doesn't say anymore that he's flesh and blood. It says he's flesh and bone. Why? He poured out all his blood. And he presented it before God. And so now, although there may be accusations from the enemy against you, you have a mediator, but there's also something else talking on your behalf in the throne of God. The blood of Jesus has a voice. And it cries out on your behalf, not guilty. 
Why? He died for our sins and was raised for our justification. He was raised for us to be declared not guilty. The blood is crying out on your behalf, not guilty. It's crying out, redeemed. It's crying out, redeemed from the curse of the law. It's crying out, rescued from the hand of the enemy. It's crying out, delivered. It's crying out, preserved. It's crying out, safe. In the midst of the throne of God, the blood is talking on your behalf. So what else do you do when all hell breaks loose? Plead the blood. You may not know what's going on. You may be in a whole bunch of I don't knows. But what you know is the blood still works. So I plead the blood. I plead the blood over my family. I plead the blood over my house. I plead the blood of my finances. I don't know what's going on, but the blood still works. I plead the blood of Jesus because the blood still has power. In 2022, the blood still works. So you make much of the blood because the blood has made much of you. It's given you a new covenant. You have a mediator, and on your behalf, the blood is talking a real good game. So when all hell breaks loose, you need to talk about the blood. What has the blood done for you? It's washed away all your sins, and by his stripes you are healed. The blood has delivered you. The blood has rescued you. The blood has redeemed you from the hand of the enemy. You talk about that blood. Satan hates the blood. So you need to talk about that blood. You need to talk about the power that's in the blood. You need to make big and talk big about that blood. Reaches to the highest mountain, and it flows to the lowest valley. Oh, the blood that gives me strength from. blood works. Go with me to Luke chapter 22. So you plead the blood. You sing songs like that about the blood. So I don't know what to sing. Sing about that blood. Plead the blood. Draw the bloodline around you and yours. Luke 22. Luke 22. Verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has desired you, that he may sift you as wheat. And sifting, it's a shaking, it's a violent shaking. But I have prayed for you. That mediator, once again, I prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. So notice something about this. I was talking to First Lady about this yesterday. I said, you know what's something that stuck out to me about the book of Job? 
No one prayed for Job. Think about the time he lived in. There were very few people who probably knew how to pray on that level. And if they were there during that time, depending on where he lived, they didn't know about Job. They didn't even know who, how to pray for him because they didn't know what he was going through. Job went through all these things and nobody prayed for him. So the next thing you need to do when all hell breaks loose is pray for somebody else. Yes, you pray for yourself. We talked about that. But you need to pray for somebody else. Because your prayer is also a seed. You know what happens when you make it a lifestyle to pray for other people? Other people will pray for you when you need it. Those who water will be watered themselves, the Scripture says in Proverbs. So you pray for somebody else. Because your prayers rise up and affect things in the heavenlies, in the spiritual atmosphere. It affects things when you're living in the I don't know. When someone comes into your heart that, you know, it's not something you did, something that reminded you about them, but all of a sudden it seems random. And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember someone. No, pause, pray for them. And if it's an intense lead, then you need to spend some time and pray for them. Because who knows, you may be the only person praying for them. See, we, you know, a couple weeks ago, Minister Isom dropped a bomb on you. I'm talking about the power of supplication. Talk about that heartfelt, earnest entreaty, the way you pray, that fervency. You pray that same way now. It's not for yourself and what you need. It's an intercession, standing in the gap on behalf of somebody else. That same fervency, well, Lord, uh, bless them. That's it. No, no, no. God, I stand in between them and what's ever coming against them, and I pray for them right now. Now, what's one of the first things you pray for them? One of the things I've learned to pray, and I remember growing up and I would be watching the news with my grandma and my mom's mom, and anything bad would happen on the news, she would always respond, Lord, have mercy. And the news is not that positive, so she said it a lot in 30 minutes. <laughs> but I realized this day, it's affected how I pray. Because I know what mercy is. Mercy in the Old Testament is hesed, which means covenant love. It's God's desire to bless you. But mercy also in the Old Testament and the New Testament is when you don't get what you deserved, when you deserve judgment, when you deserve wrath, when you deserve to be punished, mercy steps in and says, no, you're not going to get what you deserve. And so when I pray for people, a lot of times I start now, Lord, have mercy on them. I don't know what's going on or what caused it, but I ask on their behalf for mercy whether it's mercy so they don't get what they deserve, or whether it's your covenant love kicking in and stepping in, whatever it is, I ask for mercy. And then I take time and pray in the Holy Ghost for them. Well, how long do you pray until you have that witness on the inside? That's enough. And some things you have to pray for people multiple times. Like you pray them through the situation. So the person, you pray them through. Well, when are they through? When they're on the other side. Somebody prayed you through. Well, how do you know that? You right here. You watching online. Somebody prayed your tail through. And you need to pray other people through. And it's not just for the sanctified grandmas. I've been praying for 50 years. Thank God for them. Because some of us are alive because of those sanctified grandmas that knew how to pray. But it's not just for them to pray people through. You need to pray people through. When you see people answer the altar call or you hear people answer the altar call, you take it up that week, I lift that person up to you. You don't even need to know their name. But that person who told Jesus yes on Sunday, Father, I lift them up to you. And you pray them through. 
somebody prayed you through. So you intercede on their behalf. And you pray like it was you. You pray like it was your child, your grandchild. You pray like it was one of your family members. You pray them through. Go to Job 42.2. When all hell breaks loose, pray for somebody else. Job 42, verse 10. After God was done talking to Job, Job 42, 10, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Remember, James said this was the intended end of God. He always wanted Job to have more. He always wanted Job to have increase. This is what, and he says, you learn that God is compassionate and merciful. You learn from Job's staying power, telling these people who are scattered, and know at the end you can get twice as much. You'll be at a place where you lack nothing. You understand that God's compassionate and very merciful. He said, you understand these things. And you keep reading because he has more kids. And it says, after this, Job lives 140 years. And it says he sees his children's, children's, children. Everything we see in the first 30 some odd chapters of the book of Job, first, I guess the first 41 and a half, took place in a period of about eight months. It's a horrible eight months. Well, those last few verses describe the next 140 years. You may be going through something, but the other side is better. All hell may have broken loose, but don't stay here. Keep moving. Have staying power with God. Don't turn on him. Don't renounce him. Don't leave him. Stick close to him and do the things we share today. Keep moving forward because your ladder will be greater than your past. You'll realize that the glory of the latter house is greater than the glory of the former house. You realize that you can actually get double for your trouble. You realize you can actually get seven times. You realize that God can extend your life. You realize that God can restore your family. You realize that God can heal your body. You realize that greater is on the other side so you don't stop. You press through the pressure. Because you realize when all hell breaks loose, what's in me is greater than what's around me. So you don't quit. You don't stop. You have cheerful endurance and you overcome everything that's thrown at you so you can pass every single test. This is what you need to do. Number one, don't blame God. Number two, keep your mouth right. Number three, get as close to Jesus as you can and stick there. Stay there. Remember, you have a mediator. You have a high priest. Make much of the blood because the blood has made much of you. And pray for somebody else. See, everybody has on their heart right now somebody who needs prayer outside of you. And here's what I saw in my heart yesterday. I was meditating this experience that we're all going to come to the altar 
and pray for somebody else. Whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's a coworker, someone in your neighborhood, you know somebody who needs prayer, who needs specifically the mercy of God. And so I want you to pray for them fervently like you're praying for yourself. And while you pray for them, I'm going to pray for you. And we believe that God is going to turn some things for us. He's going to turn these things. And we will be the recipients, the beneficiaries of the mercy of God. So Minister Dathan, come and help me. And so if you feel that impromptu spirit, you want to come to the altar and pray, whether you want to kneel or stand, come on, this is how we're going to transition to the end of our experience today. I want everybody to take time and pray for somebody else today. If you're watching online at home, near a place where you're at home and you can get on your knees, maybe go to your couch somewhere, pray for somebody at home. If you're traveling right now and you can't stop, I still want you right now to pray for somebody right now. And if you're a person in here, you never ask Jesus to come to your heart, ask him to save you right now, ask for his mercy, you will be saved. You will be saved. Go ahead and begin to pray. Begin to pray for that person that's on your heart right now. In this room and online, begin to pray for them. Ask God to show them mercy. Begin to intercede for them right now. Begin to stand in the gap for them right now. Ask for their deliverance. Ask for their salvation. Ask for their healing. Ask for their victory. Pray strong for them, just like you want someone to pray for you. Come on, pray. Come on, pray. Intercede with some fervency. Intercede with some fervency. Oh, Father, we pray. As they're praying for others in this room and online, all those listening on replay, I pray for them. I pray that you grant them mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. I get in between them and what's heading the way, and I ask for mercy. I ask for your covenant love to manifest. I ask for your covenant benefits to kick in. I ask for that judgment to be done away with, for things to be turned in their favor. I ask for mercy right now. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on each and every one of them. Every family, every home represented here in the sanctuary and online and watching and listening, I ask for your mercy. I ask for your mercy. I ask for your mercy. I ask for it right now. I ask for that delivery power, that healing power of the blood to sweep through these lives. I come against the plan of the enemy. I come against the plan of darkness, the plan of the accuser. I bind you and I curse your assignment to fail. Leave them alone. I break the power of your attack. I break the power of your curse. I bleed the blood of Jesus over each and every one. Each and every one. Father, I ask that you grant them wisdom and understanding that they make the right decisions. 
the right decisions, the right decisions. Not responding to the pressure, but responding to the wisdom of God and the leading of God. I ask that you grant the wisdom, that you grant them understanding, that you grant them insight, that their eyes may be opened, their ears may be opened, that they do exactly what you want them to do. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your strength. We ask for your provision. We call in jobs and better jobs. We call an increase. We command every bill to be paid. We command cars to be paid off, houses to be paid off, student loans to be paid off, medical bills to be paid off, credit cards to be paid off. We call in the opportunities and we command these doors that need to be opened to be opened. May your favor surround them as a shield. Before people encounter them, may they encounter the favor of God. Father, I pray that you deliver them from wicked and unreasonable men, for all men have not faith. Those things you put in their heart, Father, those desires of their heart that you've given them, may it come to pass speedily. May they be strengthened in the inner man. May they not give up. May they not quit. But may they press toward the mark of the high calling of the anointed one, Jesus and his anointed. May every fruit of the Spirit be developed in them. May they increase in the anointing of God. May they experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. Not just in the world to come, but in this land. And this time, may they experience your goodness. May they taste and see that the Lord is good. May they receive the hundredfold in the midst of this pressure. Have mercy on them, Father. In the midst of what's going on in this nation and around the world. In the midst of economic turbulence. In the midst of untable time, unstable times. I ask for mercy. I ask for mercy. I ask that you give them a that there's a for that blessing to increase, to increase in their life. Oh Lord, have mercy. Oh Oh Jesus did right. I remind you of him, Father, the one who got everything right. And on behalf of his sacrifice, I ask for mercy. Yes, and it will turn, it will turn, it will turn. In their lives, in their families, in this community, in this city, in a state, it will turn, it will turn. Of the mercy of God, because of the mercy of God, because of the mercy of God, because of the mercy of God. Jesus, Jesus. 
Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Ratayishteki. Jesus, 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 Jesus. So, Father, we receive the mercy. We receive what we prayed out in faith, in our understanding, and in another tongue. We take it with Holy Ghost faith, and we call it done. And we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. Mm, hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Somebody has a tongue, go ahead and give it. will move in their lives because you've asked me to. And as I move in their lives, I will also move in yours. Because you took time to pray for others, I'm going to turn things for your good. So don't you worry about anything. Don't you get into stress or fear or doubt or anxiety. You remember my goodness and you remember that I am good and my mercy endures forever. So put your faith in me and my character and my word and watch how I cause you to come out on the other side and what cause them to come out on the other side where you'll both have a testimony of my goodness in this day and age that will cause other people to come to know me as you tell them about my goodness and about my mercy, about my compassionate love towards thee. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Yes. Thank you. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Glory to Jesus. Hallelujah. See, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 calls that tongues and interpretation of tongues. That's given for our edification, our exhortation, our comforts, give, build us up and give us comfort. That's one of the ways Jesus talks to us in the church today. Amen. I believe today's message encourages you, it strengthens you, it's helping you to live the lifestyle of faith. If you're ever in the metro Atlanta area, we'd love for you to worship with us in person. You can find information about our different locations at fccga.com. Also, we have so many different ways where you can get the word. You can download our Faith Plus app. You can also visit us on our social media pages, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook on YouTube. We love for you to connect with us. We also have a podcast on Apple Podcasts as well as on Spotify. We have two. One is called the Faith Podcast and then we have our daily devotional podcast which is called Faith in the Morning. I look forward to seeing you on many different social media platforms and in person at Faith Christian Center. Thank you so much for tuning in and remember something good is going to happen to you today so expect miracles. God bless.